My name is Nadine. I'm one half of Becoming. My name is Sasha. I'm the other half of Becoming. Becoming is a podcast designed by us for you, discussing a range of topics and stories that will inspire, motivate and challenge you to become the best version of yourself. Disclaimer, this podcast may contain strong language. If it is likely to offend you, please head over to another podcast. Today's episode is about the impact of mental health on families and the care and the support that families are given when faced with someone in their family who's suffering from a mental health condition. We will be hearing from our friend Shakila with her perspective on how it felt for her having a family member who suffered from mental health. So welcome Shakila. Hi guys. <laughs> Hello. Mm-hmm. Shakila has her own podcast with her husband and a friend called the No Help Service Podcast, which is centered on mental health and mental well-being. Um, so Shakila, do you want to tell us a little bit about your podcast? Um, we'll, you know, we'll signpost everyone to go and visit the podcast on YouTube, but just tell us what it's about. Yeah, so the No Help Service Podcast um, is a podcast that was generated from sitting in my living room and having a conversation around mental health and the troubles that my husband and my friend were are sorry, currently facing. Um, and it's all about normalizing the conversations of mental health amongst the black community um, and creating a safe, spa- a safe space to speak on it as well as knowing that you're not the only one going through it. I feel like in this day and age, especially with the pandemic going on, a lot of people are quite frankly suffering in silence. Mm-hmm. Um, even you know, in more relevant terms of um, this young boy, Richard, mm-hmm. um, it was it was publicised that he would have expressed to his mum that he was he was suffering with the lockdown and things like that. Um, so I feel like we just need to create a space of, you know, coming together and supporting one another and making it okay to talk on these things as opposed to maintaining the stigmas that we have around mental health and seeking help and also taking antidepressants because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm myself there was a massive reluctance when it came to that um just due to the rhetoric that would have been had in the household and you know growing up and the people around so yeah it's all about creating that safe space um and we have got some some more work coming up so you can follow it on instagram at the no help service um and follow along and see what we're getting up to and the exciting things that we've got coming up absolutely yeah so Obviously, you spoke about how you're all you were all together and you, the right thing to do in terms of doing a podcast and getting your stories out there. What other events led up to that? Because initially, when you go through something, you're not going to straight away go, "Okay, I'm going to raise awareness on it." Mm. Often, it takes mm. a journey, and it's a journey of understanding it yourself. It's the process of coming to terms with it yourself as well before you're ready to yeah. talk out about it. Absolutely. So, for me personally. Um, I've struggled with my mental health, although upon reflection at the time, I didn't understand it. Um, I struggled with my mental health right from going off to uni, to be honest. Um, And I think, you know, growing up in a household with siblings, my mind was always busy. There was always noise. So to go off to uni, 
to be dropped off to this place of the unknown. There's none of your friends or people that knew you growing up. And you're just sat there in this room on the first day, absolute silence. And I was just like, what the hell do I do now? There's all this build and buzz and excitement leading up to uni and, you know, mum's happy packing you up and this is what she wanted for her, you know, for me, for this, in terms of my household, this is what she wanted for her girls. And then I got there and I was like, well, what, what now? What is this? And so I spent the first year really um, trying to find myself again, trying to figure out, you know, who is Shaquilla? And, you know, yeah, I'm here for uni. I'm doing this because my mum wanted me to be here. You know, yes, I'm academically able, but is it something I wanted to be doing at the time? No, not really. I didn't actually apply for uni. My mum didn't know that. I didn't apply through UCAS like everybody else. I told her I did. And then it's when my A-level results came out. She's like, oh, so what uni did you get accepted into? I was like, oh... I didn't even apply so I had to spend the day on clearing and I was just saying to, you know it was my sister who ended up getting me on the course I just said to her anything to do with sports that's what I like right now anything to do with sports so she then got me into uni and I found out I was going to Bedford I didn't even know where Bedford was in my life yeah. and um yeah so I really spent the first year just trying to refigure out who I was um and I didn't really do a good job at that if I'm honest uh, I was around people who didn't know me and you know, you're, you're sort of trying to recreate yourself or become this somebody, well for me, become this somebody who, who wasn't truly me. Okay. As well as then fighting the battles and demons I had within okay. myself from my upbringing. Um, and by the time I finished first year, I had a major life-changing event um, that occurred to me. And I didn't have a safe space or, or that relationship with my mum where I could go and speak to her. So I came back down in that first summer after finishing my first year um and I was broken in all honesty I was absolutely broken um and I bottled it all up and Josh my husband now because uh, I've known him for 10 years he was the one who who dealt you know led me through it and, and was my support emotionally but at the time you know he was trying to help in a situation that hadn't been caused or he wasn't involved in it so I didn't and I wasn't able to understand and process it so it was a whole like push and pull factor um, I then returned back to uni in second year and my coping mechanism was smoking. Mm-hmm. And so at uni, a lot of people were like, if they didn't see me with a spliff, then they'd be like, oh my gosh, what's up? Mm-hmm. Like the, the normality of me smoking was just so, like, it was just so normal. But nobody then thought to say like, what's going on why are you smoking so much but I can't blame anybody because nobody knew me mm-hmm. yeah. so I was there battling with that and then you know I went through a good few years of self-destruction um and I lost the the contacts with the people who did know me from London um I was in some in, in a really bad relationship I was in a domestically abusive relationship and there was a lot of control and manipulation um and physical abuse um, again, which I, you know, I haven't spoken to my mom about, and this is going to be something that comes out in my podcast. Um, and I just wasn't given the tools in life to deal with it. Mm-hmm. You know, your brain has three three main ways of, of, of dealing with things. You have your drive, your threat, and your um, soothing. And I was very much given tools for drive. Like I'm very motivated. I'm a go getter. I'm resilient. I'm adaptable. Um, I'm able to see threats. I can forward plan and see when situations are wrong or I can very much I have this uh, as of late I've learned to trust my gut but I'm able to see the situation before they happen 
But when I was on my roads of self-destruction, there was a block there. So I, I was constantly making wrong decision after wrong decision after wrong decision. And I was just causing so much more trauma to myself. And after I finished uni and graduated, I very literally two months after fell pregnant with my eldest. And again, that was off the back end of a bad relationship. Somebody not knowing me, me just jumping from my previous relationship and needing an escape and you know yeah I was, I was pregnant with my son and that became my focus I was so fixated on being a good mum being being like my mum in some sense like I really idolized the way she raised us as a single mother and what she put into us um and a lot of who I am is because of her but equally because of her I am who I am and there are also a lot of faults and things that I'm unable to process or deal with or understand and so I remember after I had my son my eldest uh, a couple of months later in an argument his dad had said to me oh you've got postnatal depression now if that's a concern you have for somebody and this is somebody you care for and love mm. to throw it at them in an argument isn't the way you're going to get it across no. so naturally I threat and I go into defense mode and also I saw postnatal depression as a rejection of your child so I'm like, how can you say I've got postnatal depression when I'm selflessly given to this baby? I've never been a mom before. Yes, I've been around my friends who have had kids from 17, 18. But being around someone who has a kid and handing them back and or picking them up, you know, and then laughing and playing and joking. And now being that mom 24-7 and I'm so focused on not going back through the roads of self-destruction and not disappointing myself. And I am somebody, I have really high standards and um up until me you know having to go through clearing i never knew or felt the feelings of failure i've always been an achiever mm -hmm. so the the thought of failing as a mum or at this time having postnatal i just nah now nah, i don't mm -hmm. but when i reflect now on myself i definitely do see that i was struggling with my mindset and that would have been caused from the traumas and the things I was exposed to leading up to me becoming a mum. Yeah. Um, yeah. And one of the things that come to mind is when my son was 10 days old, we was out in a shopping centre. It was like a, it's an interchange. So it's an outdoor shopping centre. And me and his, his dad had got into like a, a back and forth. And I just, I remember I just pushed the buggy out into the road and I just walked off. And now when I think about it, I'm like, oh my gosh, like that's absolutely crazy. But at that moment in time, I just wasn't in the headspace. Like, I, I didn't want, I wanted out. I didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Um, especially at that time, you know, my son's, my oldest son's father, he equally came with a lot of verbal abuse. So at that point, I just couldn't be bothered with it. So yeah, I then came back down to London, was back in contact with my now husband. And I had a lot of trauma and a lot of things uh, like underlying in my mind and, and my mindset that I hadn't dealt with um, but because of how I am I'm very resilient I just keep going and I just push everything to the back of my brain and I just focus on my present and my future what am I working towards I've always had it instilled in me you have your short-term goals and your long-term goals so I'm always working towards something and I never take the time to actually stop and yeah. listen to what's going on in my head but I really had to start taking some time to just pause and reflect. And then equally at the same time, my, at the time, fiance, now husband, he was starting to go through his own mental health um, problems. And so we was living in a household where we're both dealing with mental health. 
and that really affected the communication and understanding and being able to take time to be there for the other person it was like okay I want to be there for you but there's only so much I can take because I've got my own shit going on but we plowed through we you know we kept going and three months before our no five months before we got married I fell pregnant with our daughter and mental health it, it, it didn't really become a thing again I was so focused I'm planning a wedding I'm a mother to a at this time to a three-year-old um I was working a full-time job and my fiance at the time again he was he was in more more of a bad place than I was so that was my priority mm-hmm. yeah. and then once we had moved um from where we was living before down to Brentford and then we got married and things slowed down again then I was able to really hear what was going on in my mind and I became really scared and I remember saying to my husband that I don't want to be here anymore I don't want to be a mum I don't want to go to work I don't want to be a wife and with depression it hits you hard it's not only mental physically so I'm pregnant and I'm depressed my physical tiredness was second to none I've still got a deal with a three-year-old I've still got to go work a full-time job I've still got to be a wife I've still got to cook and clean um and I was really struggling so I think I had a health visitor appointment um at about six months so how's it going and normally when I ask that question I'm like yeah yeah it's all right things are okay and I just broke down and I just said I can't cope so I don't want to do this anymore like I don't want to do it and so she referred me straight away to the perinatal team and they came out a week after I got signed off of work. Um, I was also having stress at work because I was trying to progress in the council. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that was the first time I experienced the glass ceiling effect. Okay. Like no matter how hard I was trying to push, all the, all the senior counterparts mm-hmm. weren't having it. They weren't having it. And I was sitting there and I'm like, listen, I've got more skills and, and abilities than you lot do. Like I can genuinely do this. Like you lot are mocking me. And um, that became a real problem. Can, can I just ask, did you have any yeah. from your friends and family when you were going through all of this? Aside from... What, in Bedford? Both, like, you've, you've gone through so much up to that point, and I know there's more, but who was there to support you? So when I was in Bedford, absolutely no one. And through being in that domestically abusive relationship, like Art Shanine, Shanine was around, but then we ended up fizzling out because he it was so controlling. Um, and I lost everyone around me. He even, you know, was he was able to get into my head and, you know, I, really my sisters, everything. So I was literally on my own in Bedford. When I came back down, it was Josh. He's always been my safe zone. I don't have that relationship with my mum to be able to say, this is what I'm going through. Cause it's like, well, I sent you to, you need to get a degree. What are you doing with that? Why, why would you fasten up yourself and all them kind of things there? So no, nah, I was on my own. And even um, yeah, when I was pregnant with Lanaya, again, it was just very much Josh. Wow. Not many people Because when I step out of, of my house, it's like a mask goes on. Yeah. And, and I'm okay. Yeah. I'll just get on with it and I'm busy and I'm doing things. And, but the minute I come inside my house, another story that's the thing isn't it with mental um health conditions often it is a mask that people put on and it's Mm -hmm. like come out and express it to others Mm -hmm. that the real shock comes and my thing is Mm -hmm. that's when we often find mental health conditions too late yeah and we wonder if you Mm -hmm. could have done more then there might have been like better outcomes like in your situation Mm -hmm. 
it's really good that you're very aware of, mm-hmm. of your yourself. How, yeah, how you, you feel. You know yourself, you know your feelings, you know this period of my life was a dark period. I need help. I'm going to ask for that help. That's so important. But um, everyone has that. Not everyone. At the time, in all honesty, like I'm talking now in a reflective stance. Yes. At the time when I'm going through it, I can't really see that. Or I didn't really see that. Um, and it's only when the health visitor came out and I really saw how my mental health was compromising myself as a mother, okay. not as a wife, not as a friend, not as a daughter or sister or Shaquilla, as a mother, like yeah. my eldest son, he saved me. And I, I can't, I can't explain it any further. The, where I was at falling pregnant with him, he saved me. So once I saw that it was really affecting me as a mum to him, and this is, you know, you guys both have your kids and it, at two, three years old, that's when children are like, they're most amazing. They're so bright and they're so carefree. And yeah, it was really affecting things. And so it was through that, that I was like, no, I can't, I can't go on like this. It's not fair. Yeah. yeah like I said, at the time, it isn't always easy to see and understand yourself. And yeah, I agree to a certain extent. I, I am able and I do know myself well enough to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. But I still stand strong to the fact that when you're going through it, yeah, it's not as yeah. easy to, first of all, admit mm-hmm. and identify. Yeah. yeah, that's so true. 100%. Because this is not up until like recent, but this is not a normal conversation. Yeah. When we ask people, oh, how are you doing? Are we really prepared to hear? How are they doing? Well, <laughs> You wouldn't even know that last night I was there in my bed crying till three in the morning. You didn't know that. Yeah. We're not really prepared for that because it's just a, a conversational thing. We move on. Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Cool. Let's get on and moan about our husbands or yeah. laugh about our kids. Or, you know, it's, it's we're not really it's, wanting. It's quite interesting as well um, in respect to when you're talking about going to university mm-hmm. and that being a trigger because in our previous episode, um, that was the trigger as well. And just something mm. that you were saying, we could just, we're starting to identify like lots of patterns. When you do move out to university, you can become very isolated yeah. when you're on your own. And this is where I also feel as though, okay, first of all, I'm strongly a person who believes primarily your education comes from the home, yeah. but secondarily, it comes from school. Uh, and so just going back <laughs> to, you know, your experience when you were suffering with your mental health, mm. With, with the children obviously I think yours is more centered around depression how did yeah. your husband deal with that I he found it really hard um like I mentioned he was already going through his um mental health problems and so leading up to it it was very much carrying him and then all of a sudden where I wear so many hats and I'm the pillar of the family and I'm the strength and I'm the one that keeps us all going for me to then falter and, and now be the weak one, yeah. um, I use that term loosely, yeah. but for me to not be able to hold it all together and all of a sudden it was like, I need you to to get, get this going. Like I'm passing the baton on to you. Um, but like I said, he was going through his own struggles. Um, so I know he found it hard. The caring, nurturing side of him was there for me and was understanding. But when I'm there going through it, and that's with anybody. There's only so much that any support network can do. Yeah. So I think he, he sort of felt relief when I did say to him, you know, I'd mentioned it to the health visitor because it was a bit like, okay, I haven't got to deal with it now. Um, 
I know that he found it hard. Yeah. I know that for sure. Mm. Um, it is difficult when you're the matriarch of the family you you and then you you know you've experienced that mm. when the matriarch falls it's like everything else just crumbles mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. that's yeah not to say that if it's a man it's, mm. it's different but I do think for the women where you hold up everyone emotionally you are the caregiver in most instances mm-hmm. to not be able to do that anymore it does have a filter effect on everything else yeah. in the family it, it just breaks it all down yeah absolutely but yeah so from from the health visitor visiting then she sent out um or she made a referral for the perinatal team um and they were quite good they came out quite quickly um but from the first conversation the first 20 minutes it was okay so what i want to do is prescribe you antidepressants i'm like why again like i said to you you can read everything in my face so i'm like to her uh nah I don't think so. And the rest of that appointment was finding out what my reluctance is, why I'm not going to accept it, and trying to convince me to take them. See, this is like, this is a conversation (laughs) I've personally had, and I know I've had it with Nadine, because there's been lots of points in my life where I felt very down to the point where I'm questioning, is it depression? But for me, and for what I, through what I live through, it's like, no, I can't say that. I'm not depressed. I'm not going to no doctors. They're not giving me no medication because I've experienced Mm -hmm. it side to it and then you also Mm -hmm. like sometimes all you need to do is just talk through things and work through things Mm -hmm. work through things as well obviously with depression it's not just sadness over a week it's prolonged it's for Mm -hmm. a period Mm -hmm. of time and it's also understanding that so I did get to a point where I'm like okay I I have been down for quite some time now I know there's something up but in my head I'm like if I go and seek help you're going to label me I've always had that fear because I know it's something that runs in my family. So it's like, okay, I can't admit to it. I can't say that's what I'm going through. And mainly Mm. fear of saying, here's some antidepressants or here's some medication, knowing that it doesn't Mm -hmm. make you better. Mm. Whereas some people actually get, oh, have you tried counselling or therapy? Why is it that (laughs) for others, it's just here's some antidepressants? And for others, it's junior it do you yeah do you need I think mainly for you know CBT if we if we mm. if we you know put it quite frankly for a lot of black Caribbean people it's here's the medication yeah yeah I want to say also that I have done talk therapies I have done counseling and I have done CBT but these are at various points in my life when there's not always a straight answer and so when you're at a certain point in your life Mm -hmm. CBT might not be the most effective or counseling might not be the most effective or you know every situation is so different Mm-hmm. However, you have this 10-minute routine check of your GP mm-hmm. and that is the easiest way of getting you in and out. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and unfortunately, with a lot of mental illnesses, you know, borderline personality disorder, bipolar, um, PTSD, schizophrenia, depression and anxiety symptoms fall under all of them. Mm-hmm. So my concern is, why are you not pushing straight away for psychiatric assessments? Mm-hmm. And that's what they should be doing. Yeah. But it's just, take this, start on a low dose, you come back, oh, no, I'm not feeling great, doctor. Okay, let's up your dose. And I, I yeah. And I grew up in a house of depression, like I mentioned in my first part in um, episode one. But my mum, when when the doctors told her she was depressed and to take antidepressants, she was like, nah. And she was able, well, I say able to, but she focused or put her energy into studying. So she'd done three degrees and a master's whilst raising us and that was her focus and 
you know I, I can't ever knock her for that like that was amazing that was great however that was an, a flipping massive distraction yeah. because what I've then found and what I said to her as I started getting older and seeing I was like my fear is that when we all leave home mm-hmm. you're going to be faced with the past 30 plus years that you've actually ran away from yeah mm-hmm. so it was really important for me to, to try and address it and, and seek help but yeah so I had two months of weekly visits so eight sessions with this um perinatal nurse talking me into antidepressants <laughs> talking um, into it, nothing else <laughs> talking me into it she'd come check in how are you doing what's going on I'm so sorry to hear that you know you, you don't feel like being a mum that can be damaging actually to take antidepressants. So I'm just, I've just clocked. You were actually pregnant. Yeah. So I'm now at this point. So I'm, I'm saying too much. I'm now eight months pregnant at this point. Um, and she ended up booking me an appointment at the mental health unit in Lakeside. So I was like, whoa, like I'm not trying to go down to no mental health. I just think of, you know, in um, the film Good Burger yeah. and you see, <laughs> well, I was like, I ain't going to no mental health ward. No, I'm not doing that. And, um, but yeah, I sucked it up. I went down there to go see the consultant. And again, it was the same conversation and explaining, you know, your serotonin levels have dropped and they're going to top you up a little bit, X, Y, Z. They wanted me to be on it until she was two years old. Now, at this point, I've expressed that I, I can see that there's something wrong. It's compromising me as a mum and my general living. And by me speaking up and admitting it, the question in my head was like, you've asked for help, so why are you turning it away? Okay. You can see that this is now becoming a problem you've gone to these services they're offering you help why are you so reluctant mm-hmm. and I didn't grow up with seeing my mom take antidepressants but I've just always had a, a stigma against that. I've always been so reluctant I just heard so many stories of other friends mums being on them and being so dependent on them and I was like I know that I've got an addictive personality mm-hmm. and that's not going to be me but yeah, by the end of this consultancy, it was an hour appointment. She wrote me a prescription and I said to her, well, you can write it for me, but I'm not going to take it. And so a few days went by, I had the prescription in my um, kitchen and I was just really, really struggling, really struggling. I was struggling to get up. I was mentally exhausted. And then but I'm like, oh, but I'm pregnant. So what do I expect? I'm coming to the end. Um, I was then really hard on myself that I wasn't able to be doing what I needed to for my son. We're now in the summer holidays He's there bouncing around full of energy, wanting to go out and live life. He's so used to us doing things and I just couldn't be dealing with it. Mm. So I picked up the prescription, came home. And I remember the first day and I just had it in front of me. I'm just sitting there looking at it like, is this now going to become my life? Yeah. And they wanted me to take it until she was two, two years old. A long time. And um, I wasn't... I wasn't on it. So I remember looking at these tablets and I was really reluctant. I was like, is this going to be me? You know, they wanted me to be on it for until Lanai was two years old. But I was like, do you know what? At this point, I need help. And I wasn't able to find another way to help myself. So I remember taking the first tablet and expecting that like, this instantaneous change. Mm. <laughs> I was expected to be fixed. And, um, and I didn't. I felt dizzy and nauseous. And I had a headache and I was vexed. I was just vexed. I was like, why is this not helping? Um, and so I think I started from 50 milligrams. So I was like a whole tablet and um, taking them each daily. And I want to say like, so 
what it did do at the time was it really increased my anxiety. Really? Really increased my anxiety. Now, I was at the, in the very last month of having of being pregnant with Lanaya, um, we went to the hospital and found out she was breech. So they started talking about a C-section. And I don't like hospitals. I don't like needles. Fabian was a very natural birth. I was gassing up, Josh. I'm sick at labor. Watch this. You're going to be, I'm, I'm on it. You're going to be impressed. So when they start talking C-section, I'm like, well, mm, nah. I went home and they're researching how to birth naturally with a breech baby. The doctors were so reluctant. I'm really, I'm really rebellious to the system. I don't follow your flow charts. Like I'm not a one size fits all kind of girl. I'm a shepherd, not a sheep. That's why I always tell my children, we're shepherds, we ain't sheep. And so, yeah, that last month, my anxiety was so high and I didn't find that and it wasn't helping. And I was just getting really frustrated. Um, so I went in and out of hospital a few times for them trying to turn her. It didn't happen. They were still trying to book me in for a C-section date. I was like, ain't happening. You lot can book it, but I ain't turning up. I'm not going to force my child. Like when she's ready, my, my body will tell me she's ready. Mm-hmm. and um, I went to hospital and I said yeah you know I feel like you know, my contractions are picking up obviously this is my second baby now so I sort of you start to remember as you start going through it again you start to remember that oh yeah this is what I'm in for and um, I said yeah you know um, I'm pregnant and she's breech and I remember the midwife was like oh she walks through the hallway and calls out does anybody want to birth the breech baby today what? <laughs> insensitive so-and-so like I'm not gonna try and swear on your podcast I know I do it a lot on mine but I won't try and do it on yours swear away <laughs> like I, w- I was vexed and Josh he doesn't like hospitals either and so with breach babies they, they leave you they they don't want to intervene um they don't want to travel the baby or put them into a you know compromising position and so I was there for five hours and then the midwife was like oh I'm just going to do an internal just to see how you've progressed and then she goes, oh, we uh, we can feel a foot. Oh so straight away, I'm like, well, you guys aren't going to let me birth her with her foot down first because they say that it's dangerous if the baby comes and then the cord drops, like it's, it compromises their health. So from that, it's like they've got a cannula in. That experience was the worst thing in my life, okay? I've got this man, as I'm going through concussions, forcing this thing into my hand. Again, my anxiety was through the roof they have it on my notes that I'm being treated for depression and anxiety that I'm on medication that I've got needle phobia and the care was just poor um and he kept saying to me you're about to have a baby why are you behaving like this and I said to him listen if you don't come better than that you're going to end up with my fist around your face (laughs) (laughs) this is my body and I'm not liking what you're doing to me and they had the Josh was feeling they do you think anybody read them they sat in, in, in my bag. Nobody read them. Um, so they rushed me down to the theatre room. They, they gave me the local anaesthetic. My water's broke on the table. I said to the anaesthetist, my waters are broken. He's telling me, no, no, no. Uh, that's just the anaesthetic going through your body. I'm like, no, no, no. That's my waters breaking. Get somebody to check. So then the midwife checks. She goes, oh, yeah, waters are broken and there's meconium. Why are they not so listening? You know, Why are they not Seriously? listening? And again, you know, this, I strongly believe, falls into the whole stats of black women being, you know, more compromised in their healthcare through labour and and all those things there. And they're like, you know, you've had a baby once already. And I'm saying to them, I didn't have a baby under these conditions. 
Mm. I've got Josh there next to me. He's feeling helpless, doesn't know what to do. I'm an emotional wreck. <laughs> then the niece sister said, oh, you know, we can top her up, but it's going to take 12 minutes. And the midwife was like, no, we need it now. So he, so, okay, you're going to have to have a general. Josh has to leave. And I'm just looking at him. He was sat there not knowing what to do. This is his first labour experience. He's obviously known that my mental health has been compromised. He didn't want to leave me. He knew this was the complete opposite to how I wanted it all to go. Like everything I didn't want, I literally feel like, I spoke on everything I didn't want. I literally just manifested it. I put it out for God to laugh at, legit. And um, so, the, yeah, they gave me the general anaesthetic. And I remember the anaesthetist saying to me, I'm just going to put some pressure on your throat. Why? That's the last thing I remember. I, I think it's to do with not having your, so your tongue doesn't like roll back. Okay. Okay. But that's the last thing I remember being told. And then I'm out. Like, so for me, when I recall the whole memory, that's what I've got playing in my head. But everything was okay. It turned out that she had the cord around her neck twice. So everything happened for a reason. I was there being rebellious and, you know, trying to be this natural mama. It wasn't meant to be. And, you know, yes, the medical team came in and done what they had to do best at the time. Um, Again, I don't feel like my mental health was taken into consideration. It was a job that they do day in, day out. This is their normality. This is what they're used to. This is their procedures and their protocols. And we're just expected to just follow along. And despite being treated now at this point on medication for depression and anxiety, it wasn't wasn't, uh, taken into account. Mm -hmm. So then I had her and I really read, you know, if you have a cesarean, you're going to be in the hospital for three to four days. So I had it in my mind that I'm going to be in hospital for three to four days. I've just battled summer with my three-year-old that I didn't want to be around. Hmm. I'm now on antidepressants. I'm riddled with worry that I'm going to have to go back home. I'm going to have to put all those hats back on. I'm going to have to be mum, cook, cleaner, wife, all those things. And I didn't want to do it. I did not want to do it. Hmm. Um, and after the first night, the head midwife came around with all my like my little care pair, care package ready to dismiss that dis- uh, discharge me and I said to her I'm not going <laughs> like I'm not going and we had a back and forth I'm then in tears she then says to me oh you know we're, we're really busy right now I said I don't give a fuck how busy you are I'm still being cared for I'm staying you're not going to kick me out day two she tried it again yeah it was day two she tried it again I've called Josh in tears they're telling me that we have to leave can you bring the car seat I don't want to come home. I'm scared. I'm not going to do something. And, you know, he's like, you know, have you explained this? And I'm like, yes, I'm here in tears telling them why I don't want to go home. And all they're telling me is that we need the beds. I don't give a fuck about your beds. <laughs> like, I don't care. That's so disappointing. And this is common as well. Like I found, especially having my second, you're pushed out of hospital a lot quicker. But he yeah. Go, you know how they're meant to wait for the baby to wee? Okay. He didn't wee. Mm-hmm. No. He didn't do the pain. No, they sent us home. My midwife was like, they shouldn't have done that. That's ridiculous. They shouldn't have done that. Like, honestly, I feel like they're just, it's all about beds now. And you are just mm. like a number. Yeah. You're just in and yep. out. That's disgusting. Yeah. No consideration. You can't even healthcare. heal as a mother, as a as a woman. Your mm-hmm. body hasn't. Got no. And bearing in mind that I've also just gone through another trauma. Yeah. A cesarean. Yeah. Is a trauma. It is a trauma. And this is like okay. barriers, what stops black people specifically from going to seek help mm. because they often feel mm-hmm. like they aren't related to or they're well, not taken seriously. Yeah. They're oh, seriously. yeah. The, yeah. And again, now this is the, my second child. So it's like, oh, you, you've already been there, done that. 
you know, after Fabian, I, I discharged myself. They wanted me to stay for three days. And I was like, I'm not staying in no hospital. But this time around, I'm like, you are keeping me here. Yeah, but because you had a reason to, you yeah. are not feeling 100% yourself mentally. Mm-hmm. That should have been taken mm-hmm. into consideration. Yeah. Even is this mother safe to go home? That should be mm-hmm. the, the forefront of their care for you. Let's make sure that she is safe to go home and her child is safe with her. Not to say you would have done anything to your child, but if a woman's coming to you and saying that they feel this way, take yeah. that into consideration. Yeah. And uh, the only thing they were considering was the quantities of beds available. <laughs> but like I said to you, I'm a shepherd, not a sheep. And I speak my mind and I say what I have to say. And I don't give no fucks. Like I'm unapologetically me. It's down to you how you want to del- like, take it and perceive it. Yeah. And um, so I stayed for three nights and then came home on the fourth day. And I spent 10 days just in my bedroom. The only time I left was to wee. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so I've got my bouncing three-year-old everywhere. You know, you can understand why mummy wouldn't want to leave the room. I was just in tears. Um, I was really, really down. And I remember my father-in-law, he came around after 10 days and he was like, look, you need to get out. You and the baby need to go see some some daylight. <laughs> so he took us to Osterley Park. But even that was just a surreal, hazy experience. I've now got local anaesthetic and general anaesthetic and antidepressants in my system. And I'm walking out in the world hazy as hell. Mm-hmm. Still don't feel like myself. Still unsure of what I'm doing. And um, yeah, that was... That was a long road to recovery after I had Lanaya. But about four months after she was born, she's about four months old now, and I was starting to feel a bit more like me. I was now doing a school run for nursery. Um, my husband had to go back out to work. So I had to I had to get on with it. Yeah. Um, and that's when my resilience and my fight or flight kicked in. Um, and although I wasn't feeling 100% doing it, I had no other choice. Um they had also increased my dosage of, of antidepressants and I was still having um at this point I think a fortnightly or a monthly check-in with um the perinatal team but there wasn't much more given around that time mm-hmm. and um by the time she was four months old I was like okay I don't want to be on these antidepressants until she's two years old like I'm gonna have to start making some changes for myself and so I, you know, changed up the routine again of what I was doing. I tried to spend a bit more time working on self. I I tried to journal, but I've never really, I've never been one to keep, you know, like when you're younger and everyone's got like a little diary. I've never been that way inclined. Journaling is absolutely amazing. Because you know all those thoughts that you have in your mind, like when your mind's just on constant override, like you're constantly thinking. When you journal, it just mm. helps to release what you're thinking about. So it might even yeah. be a reflection. It just helps to release something that's been bothering you or something that you're looking forward to in the future. And it's kind of just time to spend with yourself. Try it out. Mm. I definitely find, I think it's more the method of me trying to journal. When I journal, I think like, oh, a really lovely journal book and a nice pen. Yeah. But really, mm-hmm. the note section in my phone, if I scroll through that, you will see a whole heap of emotions put down in there. So I, I, I do know that I'm probably better off doing it on my phone. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I'm trying to implement again now. You know, I, I had therapy this morning and she said, you know, just try and get into it again. And you know, do it on your phone. You, you, you know, you said that you've got a lot of notes on your phone. So do it on your phone. So I made her promise that I will be doing it. Yeah. Um, so I'll let you know, Sasha, how that goes. <laughs> but yeah, so by the time she was four months, so yeah, four months, I was like motivated that I wasn't going to be on antidepressants any longer. 
I also didn't want to speak to anybody about it. I didn't want to tell. I was actually like embarrassed to tell people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember having um, a phone call with Shanine about it. And um, yeah, it was just about, you know, again, trying to normalize that conversation. Mm-hmm. But I, it didn't feel natural enough to have. Um, and it took me a while to even, again, admit to my mum that, oh, I'm, I'm taking antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Because for her, when she was depressed, her mode was study, study, study. Put my head in my books, put my head in my books. So there was a slight embarrassment um, and a slight shame. And I felt guilty. I felt guilty that I couldn't do this by myself. I felt guilty that Fabian missed out on, you know, six months of, of his mum. And um, I have, I'm very hard on myself. I do know that. So there was a lot of underlying like negativity around that, but I remained focused, kept going to my GP for my 10 minute check-ins. And by the time she was, I'd done loads of research on how to come off them. So I knew I couldn't just stop. Yeah. I knew if I stopped, I was going to probably just end up going back on them. You have to, you know, reduce your dose every two weeks or every month. And so I started doing that. And by the time she was 10 months old, I wasn't on them anymore. And I was really nervous, like, oh, my gosh, have I done the right thing? Because I'm still telling my GP that I'm taking them. The perinatal team still thought I was taking them. The health visitor still thought I was taking them. But I just didn't want to do it anymore. I was now felt like I was at a place where I, I wanted to get on by myself. I didn't want to be dependent on this. And if I did tell them, how would they then perceive that? Yeah. Because it took them so long to convince me. And, um, yeah, so I carried on. I went through life. Do I feel like I was in a better place? On the outside layer, yeah, to the world, yeah, I was fine. But when I close my front door again, I'm here by myself. Absolutely not. I've still got traumas that I haven't dealt with. I've still got issues that I haven't faced. I've still got five years in Bedford that I, you know, my brain's just shut out. And I tried, yeah, so I I went to the doctors and I did try talk therapies or CBT or counselling. But my thing was, I've done these and they're not helping. Mm-hmm. and they were like oh, okay well maybe we should be back on antidepressants and I was like absolutely not maybe we need to find out what the root of this problem is mm-hmm. maybe I need to be given you know or shown some more tools on how I can open up these wounds or these closed doors yeah. and be given ways to actually cope and accept certain things mm-hmm. um, and it's being able to really like identify the trauma um, right mm-hmm. Because a lot of the time, even with depression, with most mental illnesses, um, it's all to do with relapsing. So sometimes you'll go through periods of feeling really good. Mm-hmm. And then there might be a tr- mm-hmm. something so small and it's a sudden relapse. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's always hard. Like, I don't know if you've heard of your, like, your shadow selves, but um, facing the darkest elements of who you are mm-hmm. and just having dialogue mm-hmm. with it and understanding it and accepting it and just becoming one with that, the, per- the trauma you have faced or whatever you've gone through, just accepting it as part of who you are and learning to survive after after acknowledging mm. it. And I think for a lot of us, that's often hard to look at our darkest part of ourselves. It's the part you put, mm-hmm. yeah, the part you've you put away, the part you've hidden. It's so hard to come in to come into terms with it and just opening that door and allowing all those feelings all those emotions Mm -hmm. that go with it to just run through you especially if you have multiple traumas yeah so for some people it's difficult to relive those traumas isn't Uh it and I feel like lockdown for many has really forced people to have to look into themselves yeah apparently one in three people now um who experienced COVID specifically um 
are now going to, or oh, is it now? Sorry, they are struggling with a mental illness six months mm. after having COVID. So it could be mm. anxiety, um, it could be dementia and psychosis as well. When I was reading it, I was like, that is a big statistic, that's a lot. The impact of, of this past, or yeah, over a year alone has been massive, absolutely massive. Um, and even, so now onto pregnancy number three, the last trimester of my pregnancy was uh, through lockdown. Mm-hmm. And, um, but just before that, again, my mental health was compromised. I was, yeah, in my second trimester, I actually tried to commit suicide whilst pregnant with Kaimani. Um, and I've got two children and I hugged both my kids goodnight and I held them tight. And for me, that was going to be the last day. Like I, I didn't want to be here no more. Um, I don't know or understand, and I'm trying to understand through therapy as to why it's when I'm pregnant that these re- these feelings really come out in me. Yeah. I don't know what happens within my mindset, but yeah. Hormones as well. I'm going to say that. It plays a crazy role in intensifying everything, mm-hmm. specifically yeah. when you are pregnant mm. and after you're pregnant. And even mm. like right down to periods, like the month, the monthlies that we all experience as women, that also can be a trigger mm-hmm. in mm. escalating how you're feeling, escalating yeah. those emotions and those dark clouds that are hanging over you. And I'm, all I have to say is my heart goes out to you. And I'm so thankful and so grateful that you found cause and you found mm-hmm. reason to still be here. Um, yeah. Because that is, yeah. They, they, they don't make sense of it. And even when you say to someone who wants to do it, like they can't even no. make sense of it often for themselves. It's just the feeling they have throughout a very yeah. time. And it's not just waking up and being like, no, I'm going to do that today it's it's a progression of feeling mm-hmm. first in my absolutely thinking, does it even matter from here like who mm. would actually miss me or mm. I don't really fit in in this world anymore or I don't want to be here I can't do this anymore it's a series of dialogue that you have with yourself mm-hmm. and, and it is dialogue yeah it, 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 you might start thinking about different ways and mm-hmm. just crazy things because there's then, active being actively yeah. suicidal and there's thinking about it when you're actively suicidal yeah have a plan Mm -hmm. you know when it comes to suicide prevent it's all about whether that person actually has a clear plan to do it or not and it's understanding that it's a journey because it might start off with just having those feelings but eventually Mm -hmm. often does lead to someone Mm -hmm. taking their own life yeah they they put the plan in place but that's why they always ask when you go to the doctors and you are feeling that way do you have a plan that's a big that's a problem in itself in terms of when you're waiting for the plan because Mm -hmm. I've had the intentions of suicide for many years it comes and goes and so to be waiting until the, I'm at the point of actually attempting it until it's then taken seriously. And this is something that we've also found in my husband as of late. It's not, it's just not taken, taken seriously. And it needs to be picked up when you are thinking on this, because when you're in that state of darkness, when you're in that place of no longer wanting to be here, it only takes that feeling and thought to be so much stronger that one moment because you've already thought on all the ways you can possibly do this. So when you're then then have that, that strength or courage to do it, there's no fucks given. Like I said, I hugged my son goodnight. I held him tight. I was in tears. I told him how much mummy um, loves him. I hugged my daughter. I've done the same thing to her. They've gone to bed. Mum's a bit down today. Fortunately, my husband, he was able to, you know, see the signs and what, when I was messaging him through the day. He's then come round earlier. And um, yeah, like I said, and, and 
I attempted to take my own life and not many people know and I'm grateful that I'm still here like now that I'm out of that 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 dark place like I do know that I have a lot of purpose I know that I've got a lot to give I know that I'm a phenomenal mom and my kids are my driving force Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm equally so grateful that Kaimani has come out fine you know I can't see that it has affected him at present in any way shape or form but that is equally certain that now sits in the back of my head what have I done to him or what might come out for him in the future yeah um to do I guess if you're in the back of your mind consciously thinking Mm -hmm. how have my emotions impacted him through my pregnancy yeah Mm -hmm. like I'm so surprised that he's such a chilled baby yeah. because my emotions were so heightened I was all over the place I know my my hormones would have been all over the place and I've seen it before in a family member where she was really suffering mentally through her pregnancy and when she had her little one um even up until just I think her daughter's now three mm-hmm. within the past six months she's only just started to become a lot feel a lot more reassured but the anxiety you could see in the baby and just how clingy she was to mum and how uncertain she was for life, that scared me. So when I then knew what I know what I've done and, and I've come out the other side and I've still got to go through the rest of the pregnancy. Um, and I home birthed. I home birthed in COVID and the adrenaline from that alone, especially after having a cesarean, because they're 22 months apart and they say not to fall pregnant 20 within 24 months of having a cesarean. Yeah. So I was ready for like, oh, they're going to try and force me to go to the, and they was, they wanted me to the labor ward. They wanted to put, give, give me a cannula again, just in case and X, Y, Z. I was like, listen, I'm going to be at home where I'm calmest. I'm not going to have your drugs. I'm not going to have, and I literally, it was a birthing ball in a TENS machine That's and I birthed my baby boy. Well done. And well done. But I, I literally had three different birth experiences and I'm grateful that I can have those experiences and I can talk on them because not everyone can. Through the trauma and obviously yeah. you want to take your life at that point in your pregnancy you know you've managed to come and turn that into something beautiful. And honestly I have to say like I looking just listening to you right now I completely applaud you for what you're doing because it's firstly it's not easy mm-hmm. at all to come forward and own up to your darkest truths as, as I said before secondly it's not easy to create a platform where you're discussing it mm-hmm. and raising awareness so to openly. help other people so you have purpose and right now it's just a beautiful thing to see how your life's kind of changing and you're living up mm-hmm. to that purpose and helping others to get through their dark periods as mm-hmm. well um, I mean, like, I really wish at the time that, you know, when people were saying, how are you doing? Yeah. And this is not to put the blame on them, but just that they were actually ready to be prepared for an answer mm. so that it would have made it a safer space for me to feel comfortable enough to have this conversation. And that's really what's driven this platform of our podcast, because like I said, you know, I didn't have that relationship with my mum where I can go and talk to her about these things. And I didn't have many people around me that I felt would be able to understand. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of things are just like oh this is just a part of life just get on with it and when you're going through it this isn't just a part of life this is life like this is what I'm actually dealing with right now this is what I'm facing and it isn't easy so yeah definitely the, the platform is just there to really normalize that conversation to reach out to people so that they know that if they have felt like this at any point that they're not the only ones and we do encourage people to you know to reach out and, and they're more than welcome to come talk to any one of us um and just create that that place of support and just understanding isn't it it's like you need the whole the whole village support don't you yeah. you don't want people absolutely to down. 
Mm-hmm. And and just being listen, just being able to listen, as you said, mm-hmm. some people aren't prepared to hear what the actual response is. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think obviously if you're going through it, you're quite nervous to even say because you're thinking, oh my, I don't want to burden this person. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say yeah. too much. What if they judge me? Yeah. But it, you're creating yeah. that people are not judged, mm-hmm. and you are listening to people. Yeah. And judgment's a massive thing. A massive thing. It Especially in this day and age. And it's crazy because the way life works is there's so many ups and downs and everyone's had their downs, but in a different light. And if someone mm-hmm. was to judge you, how would you take it? I think sometimes that's what we need to try to think about. Like in our lowest moment, if we was to tell someone about it, how and they were to judge us about it, how would we take that? And I think we're in a more privileged position nowadays where we are, this is more of a topic that's not as stigmatised. Mm-hmm. When yeah. Our parents were younger having or, or experiencing those changes in your in your mind mm-hmm. you couldn't then openly say that because people would automatically label you yeah and absolutely and I think it depends as well doesn't it like this is the thing like what I've been kind of having a conversation with myself about recently is although we're having more open conversations about mental illness it's only like certain mental illnesses that we are discussing the major mm. they are still highly stigmatized mm-hmm. and highly judged like if you look at misconceptions yeah. about them so when you and what's automatically when someone hears schizophrenia they confuse that with a split personality disorder yeah. when it's got nothing to do mm. with or, mur- or aggression or, or murder and, like, yeah. and and even oh God, what's the other one multiple personality disorder mm-hmm. Borderline, yeah. Yeah. Borderline personality. And that's what my husband's just been diagnosed with. Sorry. And then Mm. you use that with the, what's the other one? Um, Bipolar. Not bipolar. It's when you actually have a split split personality. You have mood disorders. So anything related to your mood. So bipolar, depression, you've got anxiety, you've got personality disorders, which that would fall into. Mm -hmm. You've got the psychotic disorders like schizophrenia, eating disorders and trauma related disorders like PTSD Mm -hmm. and then the substance abuse disorders. But I think a lot of people confuse that split personality with schizophrenia because back in like the 50s and 60s and 70s, they would just it was more popular to say that people have got lots of different people living in their heads. Schizophrenia, I think, has always been a mental health illness that's never been understood. And even to this day, as we mentioned in our previous episode, they're still trying to recoin that term. They don't like the term schizophrenia. I think they are for quite a few Um, of them. So it, it is very broad. And I think understanding mental illness a lot of the times they often interlink like as you said mm-hmm. with depression and anxiety these are usually yeah. underlying they weave into illness. each other and what we do need to realize and have the conversation about is anxiety and depression and stress even these are the minor ones that can often lead on to a major mental health crisis if yeah. it's not targeted or seen early or and there's not those are the most spoken about ones and they are also the most spoken about mental illnesses so i think it's all about i think we're more accepting of those mm-hmm. conditions we're more accepting of eating disorders and, and substance misuse and yeah. depression mm-hmm. anxiety but we're not as accepting with someone who's got bipolar mm-hmm. you fear even eating disorders i think that's more open now com- comparing you know to when we were at school and eating disorders were something that mm-hmm. you only saw on the television i don't think there's as much as a stigma attached because mm-hmm. people talk about it more whereas like when we were growing yeah, up I think that's been spoken on definitely around um like when we when we was in high school about about eating disorders yeah. was 
it was becoming more of a thing, yeah. So I definitely agree that it's, that's that's more like a normalised, accepted mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, but as to the borderline personality disorder, there's three types. Yeah. So you've got the odd or eccentric disorder, then you've got emotional or erratic, and then you've got anxious or fearful. Mm-hmm. But within those three different types of BPDs, you have your own set of characteristics. Yeah. And that's hard enough to cope with. And I guess people just yeah. don't know what that is. And, and as you said, your husband was diagnosed with that. As a family, yeah. how has that impacted you and, and your children? Um, I thought it's impacted me most because I'm the one that's most aware and I live and deal with it every day. Um, my kids, the impact I feel it has on them is that, yeah, they, they've got multiple, multiple versions of dad through the day. So they've got dad when he's really happy made to play and then next minute he ain't on it and then he doesn't want to be around around them or then he starts getting really um like irritated um but yeah you know it's, it's a new diagnosis um and we're grateful that he has been able to be diagnosed that was was having massive battles with the nhs and we ended up going private um so now he currently doesn't live in the family home he's um living nearby so that he can be in a space where he can you know, refocus and get the, the care and treatment that he needs for present. Um, but I think even just from not being present in the home, it, it does have a shift, you know, essentially I'm manoeuvring right now like a single household. Um, and so I've noticed like with, with my eldest, he's starting to get a bit more cheeky in the mouth and feeling like, you know, I, I always have that fear of when you hear about a single parent and the son says, oh, I had to separate me the man because my dad weren't there. Mm-hmm. I sort of see and feel like, oh, you're thinking that you need to be the man right now, but babe, you're five, like settle yourself. <laughs> but it's good that your husband's taken the time or, or had the opportunity, I guess, to kind of take time out for himself. Yeah. Because that is part of his well-being, I guess, isn't it? Just Yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, it doesn't make it easier because with this, he has a lot of suicidal ideations. And so the minute I don't hear from him, I'm then worrying. And then that then puts a, a block on how I'm then mothering because I'm now not focused on you. Worry. I'm trying to get through to him sure he's okay because when it comes to suicide I don't take that talk lightly and I don't feel like anybody should Mm -hmm. so it's a lot I'm always dealing with a lot but um like I said I'm seeking therapy for myself now and um hoping that it's it's a gateway to better things and I feel like I'm in a better place and um fortunately I am in a better place to be able to help support my husband so that he can get himself back to a better place um and I'm really, really proud of him because for a black man to first of all accept that it's a mental health problem and to go out and try and seek help is massive. I feel it's a massive thing in our community. So I am really, really proud of him for doing this. It's really brave of him. And he's speaking about it as well. I can only applaud that being so, you know, he's gone through the emotions. He's acknowledged that he has a condition. He's got the diagnosis and now he's speaking about it. That's comforting going through the same thing yeah absolutely as I said it's all of when you talk about it you start to see the characteristics or some of the symptoms and for his listeners as well mm-hmm. they'll be like, able hey, to I, 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 I relate that. to that I've experienced mm. this you get what I mean so you're more likely to look within and be like hmm is everything okay with me let me just do a quick check-in with mm-hmm. myself and there's nothing wrong with going up for a checkup, your no. your mental health is just as important as your physical health. We I should think be the, checking I think up the, on that. The worry is, especially when you're going for a checkup, um, is detention. And earlier, previously, we spoke about the rates of detention, specifically when you're black as well, being mm-hmm. hold under the Mental Health Act. 
it's mm-hmm. I feel like people have that fear and then again the fear of being judged and the fear of being medicated there's just so there's lots of fears to work through but hearing stories and seeing the success of it it will make more people hopefully more willing to seek that help and unfortunately you know black British people are more likely to be diagnosed with a mental health condition after being dealt with the police as opposed to yeah. through the NHS mm-hmm. um, and then you think about that's probably more of your black man and then they're being diagnosed with schizophrenia more than anything else psychosis yeah. um, mm-hmm. psychosis is really highest, prevalent right, in black yeah. males in the UK yeah so there's a lot to it and then equally like I don't feel when you are going to the NHS, there is a certain amount of pushback. Like I've definitely seen it in my husband. There's been a lot of pushback, which then send us to go private. Like you really, this is my phrase at the minute. You have to invest in your mental wealth. Like mm-hmm. if you can go out there and support smoking weed and you can go out there drinking and all, you need to support your mental health primarily because once that starts being compromised, your whole being's compromised and you know I, I used to smoke I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I, I wasn't a smoker but I can definitely tell you that was an escape from reality that wasn't because I was functioning healthy in a good state of mind and, and being able to cope that was my get out so yeah I mean the world we're living in right now is really harsh there's a lot going on and we just need to be there for each other and try and get the best out of each other and help our black people rise again, like be the kings and queens that we were and, and always have been destined to be. Like I'm sick and tired of being suppressed and made to feel like a sheep and I've got to conform to this Western world. Like that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> I loved hearing your story and hearing your journey, like what so you're important. doing. It, honestly, and the conversation we had earlier. Thank you so much, Leela. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for having me on your podcast. Fine. People, please do go and follow the No yes. Health Service podcast, the NHS podcast on Instagram yep. and on YouTube. And we're also on Sound- SoundCloud for those SoundCloud. who just want the audience. Ooh la la. Yeah, we're getting out there, girl. <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank so you. much. And no problem. It's been, it's been so inspirational having mm-hmm. you on today honestly I'm just yes. in complete awe of the person that you are yeah and, and I'm, what I'm, you've gone through because that's all part of you and that's part mm-hmm. of the beauty of and who how you are. you're redefining your purpose mm-hmm. and just making your voice heard now it's something to yeah. up to and I hope you do touch a lot of people mm-hmm. with your message which is very you important will. and yep yeah, you definitely will and we'll love to have another conversation with you in the future. If you have any questions, anyone, please do email us on info.becoming9 at gmail.com. Thank you, Shaquila. You're welcome. Bye, guys. Bye.